is uh, going to have Ginger and Derek teach you a hymn that I wrote. But because of time, we'll uh, skip that, so uh, we'll get into it. If you need to leave for whatever reason, if I go a little too long, just feel free. You won't offend me in any way. I know we believe in preaching the everlasting gospel here, but uh, sometimes <laughs> one of my uh, favorite teachers was the, uh, a man by the name of uh, uh, Edward Miller. He uh, pioneered the Argentine revival, and he said that there is one disease that uh, plagues the church. It's TB. Tired bottoms and tiny bladders. So uh, <laughs> I understand that. So if you have a tired bottom or a tiny bladder, just feel free to do whatever you need to do, and uh, I will continue on. Anyway, if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to the uh, book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 25. We will be jumping over to the New Testament in a little while. I want to talk to you about the habitation of God. The habitation of God. I have been convinced for many, many years, and I know this has been a little bit of a theme that has come out lately, that God wants to take the church from visitation to habitation. I have been a part of some of the great uh, visitations, Brownsville, uh, Toronto, and so on, been in other meetings where the Spirit of God has come, what we would call revival, or at least a mini-revival, and yet uh, I'm convinced again that God wants to give us a permanent revival in that sense. God's promise in the New Testament, we will come and we will make our what? Abode. There is a difference between visitation and habitation. You can go and visit somewhere and spend two or three days there, but ultimately you come back to your abode. And God is wanting a permanent pl uh, position, if you like. One of the great revelations of the New Testament is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I know many times we pray as if God is out there, and He is out there, He's everywhere, and so on, but we fail to understand that He dwells within us. That's one of the great mysteries, if you like, that is revealed in the New Testament, Christ in you. It's, uh, we don't come to meet God at church, we come and bring God to church, if you like. But anyway, I won't get into all that right now. But uh, Exodus uh, chapter 25, let me uh, just draw your attention to verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is not Moses at the end of 45 days of prayer and fasting, begging God, pleading God, God, rend the heavens and come down. We need you, we need you, we need you. This is God taking the initiative and saying to man, I want to come. It's not man pleading with God. It's basically God pleading with man. Notice what he says in verse 8. I want you to construct a house, a sanctuary, a dwelling place for me that I may dwell among you. He doesn't say, book me a hotel, I'm going to be visiting for a few days. You know, God is not a circuit-riding preacher. But, uh, you know, once a month he sort of lands in Lakeland, but then we don't see him for another three weeks or two months or whatever the case may be. He says, I want to dwell. I want to live here. I want to abide here. Build me a house. In verse 8, you've got God's desire. Or if you like, God's request. I believe it's an eternal request. It's a longing that God has to be with his family like any father longs for when the kids come home. You know, God wants to come and he says, I want to dwell with you. That's God's desire. That's God's request. And if that is an eternal request, then so is verse 9. Because in verse 9, you have not only God's desire, but God's demands. Not only God's requests, but God's requirements. He says this, according to the pattern, or sorry, according to all that I will show you, as to the pattern of the house of the dwelling place and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. If I can borrow a good Irish term my mother used to use a lot, God is finicky. That's a good Irish term. Not funky, finicky. He's fussy, he's particular. He says, listen, if I'm going to dwell with you, I need certain things in place. I'm going to give you, in fact, the type of house that I want. God spends 60-plus chapters dealing with his house in the Old Testament. That's how detailed God is. That's how finicky God is. Listen, I want this sort of furniture. This is where I want it placed. This is the color scheme. 
This is the material, I mean, 64 chapters in which he tells about the house that he wants to live in. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning is, again, the dwelling place of God, the habitation of God. And again, the emphasis, I want to live with you. I want to dwell with you. I don't want to just visit. I want to make a permanent abode in your life and my life. Now, I'm going to use some words interchangeably for a while, and let me be honest with you, this is going to be somewhat lighthearted, and uh, what I'm really doing is going to anesthetize you, and then we'll operate, but uh, anyway, the word atmosphere, the word environment, the word habitation, the word culture, all of those words, they've got a sort of a similarity, if you like, the word atmosphere, God is looking for a certain atmosphere, we can create an atmosphere. We could bring up, let's say, you know, a whole bunch of brass instruments up here, play some uh, John Philip Sousa uh, music, if you know who he was or what he did. Anyway, all the military, you know, march music, we could create a real patriotic sort of an atmosphere. Although we could also tr uh, dim the lights, uh, put a few candles around, have somebody on a violin and create a very romantic atmosphere. We can change the atmosphere. And God is looking, if you like, for a certain atmosphere that he dwells in. If you take the word atmosphere and you take it outside, it becomes the word environment, if you like. And uh, we have environmentalists today. I don't even know what an environmentalist was when I was a kid. Now they're, you know, breeding like rabbits. But uh, we, Nancy and I passed it up in the Seattle area, uh, one of the most beautiful parts of the country. And even though it rains every day up there, if you were to spit the environmentalists would declare it a national wetland. I mean, they are fanatics. You know, you've got to have permission to cut down a tree. You've got to have permission to do this and that. And to, why? Because they, want, they don't want the environment marred in any way. You know, they're trying to protect this bug or butterfly, whatever it is, and so on and so forth. Certain components need to be in place in order for that thing to survive or thrive, whatever it is they're after. A few months from now, Nancy will be back, uh, Nancy and I will be back in Arkansas, and um, they will begin to take the outdoor plants inside because a few months from now, the weather will not sustain what you can sustain year-round down here in Florida because uh, they call them indoor plants and outdoor plants. You have plants, again, that uh, you don't have to worry about. But up there, because of the weather, those plants are, are designed to survive in certain temperature have to be brought inside. Otherwise, they won't live. And so God is looking, if you like, for a certain environment in which he dwells. And if you spoil that environment, so to speak, God will not survive, if I can put it that way. The next word is the word habitation. If you uh, get your dictionary and look up the word habitation, it means the usual place that someone or something is found. The usual place that someone or something is found. Years ago, when our children were smaller, I'm talking about 40 five years ago now, maybe 50 years ago, we took our children to the uh, San Diego Zoo. In those days, it was reputed to be one of the best zoos in the world. I don't know if it still has that status or not. But I remember walking around, and here were all sorts of enclosures with lions and tigers and, uh, you know, giraffes and hippos and rhinos and all these other animals, leopards and so on. And I thought, you know, these, these animals are used to this sort of weather. Again, 80, 90 degrees, sweltering hot like it is here in Florida, and so on. Then I came to another enclosure, and there was a polar bear. And my heart went out, as much as your heart can go out to a polar bear, but my heart went out to that poor critter, and I thought, this is a very poor habitation for a polar bear. Southern California is not where polar bears are found. You know, go back 90 degrees or something, and down, you know, zero degrees, and that little critter, or that big critter, I should say, will feel at home. You know, it's in a strange environment, a strange atmosphere, a, a strange habitat. God is looking for a certain habitat. He's looking for a certain uh, dwelling place. And then, of course, you have the word culture. Culture is the way in which we're raised. I moved to America at the age of uh, 15 or almost 15. My father uh, landed or we, uh, we uh, lived at a Bible college in uh, Minneapolis where they gave us accommodation, and uh, I remember within a few days of uh, being there, making friends with some of the staff kids, we were playing ball and different things and so on, and every once in a while, they'd sort of look at me in a strange way, and I realized after a while that the language I was using, again, was not, uh, they were not used to, 
I was swearing. Now, I wasn't swearing in my English culture, but I was swearing in the American culture. You know, certain words in England, uh, you know, are swear words, and they're not in America. The word sod is a swear word in England. The word sod here is something you put on your lawn, make your lawn out of, you know. But, uh, you know, and I won't go any further than that. This is being recorded, and uh, <laughs> so I, 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 might, uh, I might say something I'm not supposed to say. But anyway, culture is interesting. Nancy and I were missionaries in New Guinea in the uh, 70s, early 70s. Uh, we had a friend that was working in one of the remote areas of New Guinea. If you know anything about New Guinea, four million people and uh, 700 languages, not dialects, 700 distinct languages. And it's very, very mountainous and it's, uh, you know, unbelievable terrain. And so you can have a, a, a village here and separated by another village, maybe less than a mile away, but a mountain or two in between. And they speak a totally different language. But our friend was uh, working with Wycliffe uh, Bible translators, translating the scriptures. He had hired one of the uh, locals in this uh, particular tribal area to help him communicate and uh, get the right word as he was translating the scriptures. And after uh, this uh, young man had been with him a few days, he asked a question. He noticed that uh, the, the missionary would reach into his pocket and take out his handkerchief. Mine won't come out right now. But anyway, take out his handkerchief and uh, blow his nose. He'd never seen a handkerchief in his life before. And so the question was, why do you save that stuff and what do you do with it? In other words, he was harvesting this crop. Oh, now I've got it. And so he took out this nice white cloth and he collected this material, put it back in his pocket again. And so, you know, wanting to be a cash-in on the, uh, you know, the latest craze, I guess, being a budding entrepreneur, he wanted to know, how can I cash in on this crop? You know, why do you save that stuff? What do you do with it? You know, now that's... Uh, sort of humorous, but we get, you know, from the moment we're born, somebody's grabbing a tissue and wiping our nose with it, isn't it? We get used to it. But when you've never seen a handkerchief and you're used to the old farmer way, I won't demonstrate, but um, you don't need a handkerchief. But they didn't need a handkerchief. But uh, anyway, but all the different uh, ways. Uh, our daughter is uh, in China. She's been there for over 30 years uh, there as I speak. She came home a number of years ago with some uh, photographs. She was down in the meat market. And uh, there, hanging up on uh, rack after rack, were all the dogs. You know, we, uh, you know, we like uh, wieners here in America, hot dogs. They have the literal variety over there. And um, you can buy whatever dog you want. It's part of the culture. You know, if you're on a diet, you buy the Chihuahua. If you've got a big family, you buy the St. Bernard. But, uh, but again, it, it's foreign to our culture, isn't it? You know, we're not used to it, but, uh, you know, one of the things you learn as you travel around the world is not everybody values things the same way you value things, right? You go to Germany, I used to minister there quite a bit, and uh, they wear the wedding band on the, on the right hand instead of the left hand, simple things like that. Some cultures, it's appropriate to belch in the middle of your meal, and uh, that's your stomach saying, you know, giving thanks to the cook, you know? Some of our young people get along great in that culture. But uh, in, uh, in America, when you do that, mother looks at you with that evil eye and uh, reminds you that there are visitors at the table. You know. Anyway, I could go on and on, and I'm sure David, if he was here, Dave Vester could uh, tell you all sorts of cultural things. But one of the things you learn about missions is you've got to understand the culture you're going to because you can offend that person. I was uh, ministering in Thailand many years ago, and the... Uh, uh, one of my co-workers had ministered at this uh, minister, uh, missionary conference the year before I was there. I didn't know anything. He did. He's a very animated guy. And um, they asked me if I knew this man. I said, yeah, you know, like, yeah, he's a good friend. You know, we've got something in common. But they were still offended by what he'd done. He was preaching about David and Goliath, and he was wanting to illustrate his point. And so he took off his shoe, and he threw it, you know, over the head of the congregation trying to bring down Goliath. Well, in Thailand, the lower you go in the body, in fact, it's offensive to sit there with your leg like this pointing at somebody because to be under the sole of somebody's uh, foot is highly offensive. And so he offended people because they, he put them all under his shoes, so to speak. Biblically, we do the same thing with the devil. The God of peace will crush what? Satan under your feet. It's a sign of surrender and, and so on. Anyway. God is a God that's looking for a certain culture. God dwells again in a certain culture, and we can offend God by not understanding his culture. So we're going to look again at uh, 
this dwelling place of God. God took uh, Moses, as you know, up the mountain for 40 days. The uh, cloud came down. The children of Israel wondered where he was, thinking he was dead and so on. It was at that time, of course, they created the golden calf and so on. But I believe that when Moses went up that mountain, the cloud came down. Another cloud, if you like, parted, and Moses was brought into the presence of God. At least that's my theory. And God said to Moses, listen, Moses, this is my eternal dwelling place. And what I want you to do, I want you to imbibe this spirit, this atmosphere, this environment, and I want you to replicate it on earth. Because the Bible says two or three times, I won't give you all the scriptures, I've got them here, but two or three times in the Word of God that it was shown to Moses on the mountain, the pattern. In other words, God didn't just hand him a blueprint, it was shown to him. So I'm assuming that in order to see it, he had to be there. And God said, this is what I want you to replicate. I want the same atmosphere that, uh, that I've dwelt in throughout all eternity. I want you to replicate it. Because the book of Hebrews says the tabernacle on earth was a copy of the true tabernacle, which is in heaven. It was simply a copy. In other words, it had the basic ingredients, if you like, the essential qualities that God is looking for were contained, obviously, in a very much a miniature sense, because God, the Bible says, even the universe itself can't contain, you know, uh, God himself. Now, you can tell a lot about a person by visiting their home. They may not be home, but if you have the key and you walk into that home, you can tell immediately whether they're rich or poor, clean or unclean, neat or tidy, you know, sloppy, whether they've got kids, even the age of their kids.
him in before he is captivated by anything else. He says, the first impression I had, I was in the king's residence. I was in the king's residence. There was a throne. And a throne obviously speaks of the fact that there is a king. It speaks of government. It speaks of authority. It speaks of power. It speaks of supreme authority. And you can go on and on and on about all the things that the, a throne represents. But there is one sitting on the throne as well. In other words, there was not a sign, help wanted, apply therein. God does not need help. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is the final and supreme authority, always will be, always has been, and so on. And you will find that wherever God is, he is always on the throne. doesn't matter if it's the Old Testament, New Testament, and so on. We're not by heaven. It is the what? Throne of God. Our Father which art in heaven. Our Father which sits on the throne, we're saying.
many of Five days.
Follow me, so Thank 
Thank you. 